This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Stan Walker, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so looking forward to this podcast. It's a little bit different to what I... I don't know if I've ever spoken to a musician and I'm super excited about it. I've been listening to your music over the past couple of days and enjoying (laughs) it very much. So you're in New Zealand, which is good, and it's around lunchtime at your end. So if we hear you um, uh, nibbling, that's fine. Uh, (laughs) We know why. (laughs) You were born in Melbourne, grew up in New Zealand and Australia. How old were you when you came to Australia? Um, I was four years old, four years old when I came to Australia. Okay. He was the winner of the seventh and final season of Australian Idol in 2009. Wow. And was a judge (laughs) on the first and second season of the X Factor New Zealand in 2013 and 2015. Over the past decade, Walker has um, won off. I'm going to have to give it a go. Aotearoa, that are yep. respected figures. I got that. And continues to devote much of his family life to his family, his people, and to Maori tanga. Awesome. <laughs> Stan has earned eight gold and five platinum singles. I mean, oh my God, as well as one <laughs> double platinum, one triple platinum single in New Zealand. He has also received eight New Zealand Music Awards and five ARIA Music Award nomination. I mean, I can't believe it. And you're sitting here talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm excited. You made the time for us. He's written, and the reason why we're speaking with him is he's written a, a beautiful and startling memoir about family, forgiveness, love, and redemption. I mean, beautiful memoir. And so um, you held nothing back from what I could read anyway. For the first time, Stan speaks with startling honesty about abuse, addiction, hardship, and excess, cancer, and discrimination, and growing up in a family where love and violence were horribly entwined. I mean, just reading that for me gives me goosebumps. So, Stan, I mean, you're such a remarkable person. I want you to start from growing up, from why you came to Australia and and talk us through your life and how you got to where you are now. We moved to Australia. um, So my mum was pregnant with me when she moved over um, to Melbourne. Yeah. Um, Had me in Melbourne. Uh, brought me back home and we moved back to Australia. I guess well, my mum and dad wanted to move to try and start a, a new beginning, try and give it a go. Um, we had family that were already living over there. So my mum and dad decided to, my dad already had moved over earlier. And then we moved over, me and my mum, we moved over a little bit later. I think they, in there, you know, considering how they were back in the day, they were trying to, to have a new beginning for themselves, for us, 
for us as a family. But you and, you know, yeah, Stan, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think migration and moving yourself and your family, my parents did it, they are from Lebanon, I feel that that is so brave as parents. I've always felt that because you've got mm. the responsibility of yourself and you've got the responsibility of children and you're looking for a better life usually, aren't you? Oh, 100%. And that's what they wanted to get away from. My mum wanted to get away from that. But, like, the thing is you can't run away from your problems if you are the problem. Yeah. So um, that was that. And so our life continued um, exactly the same. They just they fitted in really easily into a different place, but the same things. My dad was selling drugs and still, you know, a violent man and he was an alcoholic and my mum was working. She used to work night shifts and we used to hate it when she leave because then we were stuck at home with either my dad or my nan was there sometimes. And so the same things that were happening even when I was a smaller and when we were living in New Zealand were happening exactly the same in Australia. It was just a different scenery, different place. <laughs> but, yeah, it was just all the same, I think, just growing up with, like, for us as kids and for me, um, abuse was normal. Watching my my mother be beaten up, watching my brothers, us getting beaten up, alcohol, uh, drugs was was such a normal thing. We didn't know anything else. So I remember my earlier birthdays as a kid, they were, they were parties for my parents. And I remember one birthday, I didn't even know it was my birthday, and and my cousin, go, he was telling me, oh, this is my cake. And then I remember my mum saying, oh, no, this is your birthday. And I was just like, oh, that's weird. Like, how do you not know it's your birthday as a little kid? Mm. Where now, like, you know, the, how we, like where I'm at now, like we celebrate our babies so much. And it's not that they didn't celebrate us. It's just because I guess, you know, caught up in that old school life where it just started off as a birthday and then it would turn into the parents' party and everything like that. And and just yeah, just when did you start becoming aware of the violence? I know you say that violence was normal, but do you know what I find with kids? You know, kids that do live in, in, in violent scenarios and violence can appear in many ways, physical, emotional, whatever, they still love their parents unconditionally because that's all they know. Is that how you yeah. felt? Yeah, I think just I didn't know anything else. Mm. So if that's all you know, that's all you know. I didn't know, like, only time I felt like it was different is when I would, um, when we moved to Australia, we moved in with uh, my uncle and auntie, my cousin and my nan and her partner. I remember going upstairs uh, with my cousin and, you know, wearing pyjamas and, like, having our beds and we'd wake up and have porridge for breakfast and stuff like that. Like, I remember that was, like, really cool. I remember, like, my auntie was really strict. But, like, I just remember that thing being very different to my thing. I never, ever saw my cousin get hit. I never saw my auntie get hit. You know, my uncle was such a beautiful, gentle man. So, yeah, I've always known that, like, it's normal, but also I did see cousins and I did see other people that didn't get hidings like I did. Yeah, I guess it was, like, normal and then also saw the difference between our family and everybody else's. It's, it, was a, it was a weird thing because I, it's like something you get used to, but you never get used to. And I, even when we were that little too, like um, I remember being on the run, like we, we were on the run with my mum, like trying to get away from my dad, going from house to house, like trying to move away and then they end up getting back together. And so like I remember that fear and watching my mum live with that fear. Uh, even as a kid, like if we get hidings, she would jump in for us and then we'd watch her get beaten up trying to protect us. Physical scars and physical things like 
you know, getting beaten up, but like so easy to forget. Like you remember the times, but as a kid watching the person you love the most and the one that shows you love the most getting beaten up, that's a hard pill to swallow. And it's, it's devastating for anybody to watch a child watch their mum getting beaten up for no reason at all. I often think that in scenarios like that, from what I see in people I've spoken with, the kids then become the adult because they're trying <coughs> to protect the mother. Yes, 100%. Oh, of course. And my brother, I remember my oldest brother, and he would have been like, I just thinking now, he's eight years older than me. If I was like six years old, like he's not even that, I was like 13 or something like that. And he's jumping in, trying to fight my dad, and like, and then him getting his head thrown through the wall and, mm. you know, having to go to hospital and my mum having to lie, you know, why he's getting stitches on his head and stuff like that. And there was just so much... Yeah, it was sad. Like my little, my big brother had to be our dad um, almost and be our protector since before he was a teenager. And he tried his best and he, and he said this to us. He goes, uh, he said to himself that he's always going to protect us. And so in a way, he didn't ever really see us as his little brothers. It was like, I have to just protect them. Mm-hmm. Like he will never, he's he's going to protect us and make sure that my dad never ever hits us or hurts us again. And he put that on, on himself as a young kid. I'm so glad that I didn't have to go through that as the older, older sibling. Like I couldn't even imagine. Like, you know, you're a 12 year old kid or 11, 10 year old kid and you're like already preparing like how, you know, that you're going to protect your little siblings and your mum. And then even when my brothers got older, like, um, how my brother had like planned to murder my dad and how they were going to dispose of him, like everything like that. Like that's the kind of normal life that we lived. And then my brother became that kind of person too, where he was out fighting all the time and him and my dad were ripping plants off, like, you know, stealing other people's dope. And then they got hits on their heads from other gang members and stuff like that. And so we were just, those kind of um, things were normal back then. And, I don't know what it's like to be brought up and what should be normal or should be a loving home where, you know. <laughs> so I'm trying to imagine what your day would have looked like. So did you get to school every day? Was that something that happened? Yeah, like we, I would go to school. If I didn't yeah. go to school, I would, I would get a hiding or something like that. Right. But so like, you go to school. Was the teachers picking up on anything that might have been happening in your house? Did docs ever come and knock on your door? Nah, we were very good at hiding things. I was very good at hiding things in general. I just had Who to were you I protecting just, myself. Mm. It was always myself because if anybody found out if I had knocked on my dad or said anything about my dad giving me a hiding or my mum, I would have got it worse. So what's the point? Take whatever hiding I'm gonna get and it's gonna be like really bad, but you don't wanna like get an even worse one where you're in hospital or you're dead or something, you know, just goes too far. We just never knew how far my dad could go. He would always like kind of go in that direction. Mm. So you got, get through your schooling. What kind of kid were you? Did you make friends? Were you, does that kind of family life allow you to make friends? Cause you can't bring people back home. You can't bring, tell me about yeah, that, like your social life. Let's say in primary school. What were your well, all my primary school was with my cousins, so they were all my best mate, and we because we lived in a village, so every next door neighbour was my family member. So, in terms of like friends, it was just my cousins, and then you know mates from school like that. I always had like a a very social life with cousins because we lived in a village. We grew up on the marae. The marae is the um, 
it's basically the heart of who we are as Māori, a place where we belong, where we have all our significant events, whether it be weddings, funerals, any meetings that have to do with the land and with our people, any big significant events or small, they all go back there. It's, it's our place of gathering. It's our place of meeting. And I don't know how to say it in English. Um, uh, where we dis- discuss things and go over things and, you know, uh, a lot of ceremonies happen there. So we live there, like, um, you know, that's the heart of our village. And so we're always at every funeral. We're always at every, any any event that's happening up there, we're there. So us kids were always playing on the hill. So what was your other family members, other aunts and uncles, did they know about the violence in the house? And did anybody say you know, you kids might need help. Does that happen? Or culturally that just doesn't happen? It does happen, but it's so sensitive and it's been so untalked about for years. Mm. But I remember we would go and um, hide at aunties and uncles' houses. In my dad's case, no one could really do anything. He was he was a psycho. He was scary. Like, he was a scary person. If you've ever seen Once We're Warriors, that was our life, but worse. My dad was way worse than Jake Demas. He was way worse than him. He was evil. He was out with the, like, in his head, he's going to get you and he's going to destroy you. He lived with that mentality. Mm. He lived with that mentality. Yeah. Sorry, Stan. It's hard, isn't it? I really, it's 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 really hard. Uh, I'd imagine that I'm just so honoured to be speaking to you and that you got through it. Anyway, (laughs) I want to know then, when I think about my own life, and of course I had none of that, but I was a Lebanese Australian living in Australia, so I did suffer a lot of discrimination. But there was a point in my life, very early on I think, I think it was like, you know, in high school, where I decided this is the kind of person I want to be. And I started to formulate my life. I want to break the cycle of this. I want to be identified as this. I want to do this, you know. When did that happen for you? When did you start recognising that maybe this isn't a life that you want? When I was 16. Because we had come so far in that time from when my mum and dad found God, when Jesus found them, to be honest. Our lives changed dramatically. Um, In terms of like... The process with my dad's anger, that's my dad. That was my dad's biggest demon. And he had never been a father, even though he had three sons. He had never been a husband, even though he had a missus. Like he'd only been this this brutal man. So when he first became Christian, he stopped all the drugs, alcohol, everything like that. He stopped hitting my mum. But, you know, when he would give us a hiding to discipline us, He would still go the same hard, but this time he would say sorry. So it took him years to let go of that anger, to learn how to be a dad, to talk. We never talked. We never heard I loved you as as little kids and stuff like that. So it was a whole new life for him. He he just had never, ever had any of that in his life. But for me, um, 16 is when I started to find my feet and find like my freedom and just where I wanted to be and who I wanted to be. And because I was so locked up as a kid, I was grounded all the time. I was always at home. I wasn't allowed to go stay at people's places and I only had my cousins and stuff like that. And I can probably count on my hand like the amount of times I had sleepovers at people that who weren't related to me. Like, but just because it didn't happen, they didn't trust nobody. They didn't, I was always naughty, so I wasn't allowed to do anything. Like, it was dumb when it comes to that stuff. But I started going to a youth group and finding my own kind of circle and my own kind of like life that I wanted to live in. 
yeah, 16 was a big turning point um, for me, meeting um, some incredible people that then started doing life with me and, and like um, speaking life into me and mentoring me and just, yeah, they, I just never had that as a kid. Like we had like our mentors were like cousins telling us to go and like steal something or smoke dope with them or like let's go and have a smoke or like you have a fight with your cousin, they would pair us up in the circle, like, you know, like fight make us fight and stuff like that. And, you know, like that's the mentors that I had as a kid. My brothers would beat me up because I, they stuck at home with me and my dad would beat me up. You know, my mum would like reject me. So like, I just, I always had those kind of mentors. The the most incredible people in my life as a kid was literally my, um, my grandfather and my grandmother, my dad's mum and my mum's dad. They were my saviors. They were my peace. Even though I treated my nan like absolute shit. She never told on me. She always had my back and she just loved me. And I took everything out on my grandmother of what my mum and dad just, you know, didn't see or anything like that. So, yeah, I got to an age where I started living for myself and seeing people and, you know, and it was the people in my life that changed my perspective on life that, wow, I can actually be happy and I can actually, this is well, be free and, you know, but life is actually cool. Like these are, I thought these fellas were awesome as, and they were cool as. Like I was like, yes. And because the only place I was allowed to go was to go to church. But this was, I found a church and a youth group that actually I loved. Like as a young person, I was like, yo, this is actually cool. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're kind of starting to formulate your own identity. You're choosing your own friends, you know. So tell me, it wasn't smooth sailing. Talk to me about some of the things you got up to during that time. I mean, as a a little kid, like I was, I was exposed to so many different things. Like we, like, you know, I said, violence was so normal. Sexual things were so normal. And I didn't know that's not a normal thing. Sexual exploitation, inappropriate you know, touching and stuff like that, um, being brought up around that, seeing adults doing things. So we knew what sex was. And the thing is, we knew what those feelings were. Like, we had feelings physically that would feel a type of way, but mentally, we didn't know what the hell was happening. Like, sex is created for such a pure, beautiful thing. It's created for intimacy. It's created to, like, to enjoy. But when that is exploited and when that's um, been abused and when that's been taken and when that's been, like, used as a weapon or used as something to hurt you, that's when it gets stuffed up. And it's not the physical that gets stuffed up. It's your head and mentally 
you're just left like broken. You're left so confused and you're left just wondering like, and then blaming yourself and, you know, thinking that you're to blame as a little kid of things that have happened to you that you had no control over. You had no control over um, someone um, preying on you, grooming you and molesting you and raping you. You had no control over that stuff. And then, you know, and that's why um, for me, I always talk about physical things and versus things that have been said and manipulation and, and all that. The manipulation stuff is the stuff that'll kill people. That'll kill people. Because it, it really fucks around with your head, doesn't it? Oh, it's like the ultimate mind fuck of doom. Like that's the honestly the, the best way I can put it because your your choice, your innocence is taken from you. It is stolen from you. I see so many young people and I can know straight away, like I, I do a lot of talks with a lot of young people um, with youth line and with so many different things. And I know kids that are walking, I can see it all over them. I can see their demeanor. I can see their, their um, just how they are. Because I've been like, I've wore every different mask to try and hide what's happened. But the thing is, I know what every different mask looks like. And I know that it's like a spirit thing. I can feel it. Like, And I see these kids and I'm like, man, you know, and then they, they go down paths that are not supposed to be their destiny, but they're forced down those paths because their choice has been taken away from them. And then other people will start speaking over their life going, like just say, for example, the stuff that was spoken over my life as a kid, my choice was taken away from me. My innocence was taken away from me. People don't know about that, but then other people going, oh, you're a little faggot, you little pufta, you're gay. Imagine being told that as an eight-year-old kid, as a nine-year-old kid, then you start believing that. And you start, oh my gosh, I'm an abomination. People like that, and I know um, there's people in my family or people I grew up with, their outcome and who they have become is from a point of their choice taken away from them. And they've become their circumstance. They've become their the words of people bullying that they've become what the abuser intended them to be or whatever. They've become these things, but their choice has been taken. Do I make sense? Oh, absolutely. And, and I feel that there are only a few people <laughs> that can break that and can get out of it. it. It so makes sense to me. So tell me your path because when did you find your voice? When did you find music? And how did you break the cycle? Um, I've always, I'm so blessed because I've always um, had music because it's part of my culture. It's a part of everything we do. Anything, any speech that happens, anything that's ever done, there's always music and food. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, so we've always had it. Always brought up singing um, Maori hymns. It's like it's part of our identity. It's part of our culture. It's part of our everyday practices of being Maori. And so I've always sung. I remember as a seven-year-old kid, I remember climbing to the top of my hill and I remember I pretend I'm singing to thousands and thousands of people. And it was like singing was my escape because I used to love singing, but I was shy of doing it in front of people. But it was mine and it was mine alone. Nobody could touch it. Nobody could tell me how to do it. Nobody could question it. Nobody could critique it. Nobody could. It was mine. It was my dream. And I remember singing to thousands and thousands, like pretending that I'm singing to thousands and thousands of people. And I used to daydream like that for years. It's escapism, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And it's because it's like nobody can touch it. And it's such a beautiful thing. I, I'm so blessed that I've been gifted, that God gave me a voice 
to be able to do what I do because it's the most powerful tool in the world. I, I heard this saying, um, and it's like an old Greek philosopher or something like this, and I, it kind of goes like this. I don't know the actual wording, like word for word, but it basically is like kings, queens, and governments may rule the nations, but you give me the music of the people and I'll take over the world. And I believe that honestly. I believe that because the amount of time I've been saved by music. Look what Bob Marley did when he got shot and then he went on stage with a bullet inside of him while his nation, while Jamaica was at civil war, he brought the two opposing parties together on stage and brought peace. His music, like you think of John Lennon, you think of like all these people, Michael Jackson, these these musicians, these songs, the songs like a change is going to come, these songs that bring hope and like save people's lives. Like the amount of people, honestly, and I'm talking like I always only ever go for the one because it's not about the multitudes of people. If I can save one person, then I've done my job. But the amount of people from the beginning of my career 12 years ago to here now have come to me and said, thank you for saving my life. I was going to kill myself or I felt like I was going to die. You saved my life tonight or I was in hospital. Like you made me like I was in a coma. Like these stories of like triumph and these stories of like redemption and these stories of reconciliation, these stories of healing and life coming back into somebody like because I sing. Yeah, but I think music does that. Music does yeah. it. It's so powerful. Tell me how you got onto Australian Idol. How how did that happen? I've always wanted to do it. I've always wanted to do it ever since I remember um, Guy Sebastian. When he was on, I remember we used to watch it. We were like, honest to God, like it was like our religion. Like we knew what time we had our own little seats. Like we were ready to go. Like let's go. Yeah. Like me and my brother were the biggest fan of Guy and also Cosima. I remember Cosima. Yeah. And like we just we're just avid, like oh my gosh watching it, and I remember I got to the age and um, I had already planned my whole audition and everything like that, but I didn't quite tell anybody. But I had got to a place in my life where I had an experience of God that God changed my life, and I finally had like forgiven, been set free, like everything. Like my life was dramatically changed, not by not by religion, not by. Uh, actual experience that shocked and rocked my whole life and like I am here because of that experience and everything that I saw God showed me this vision it was so vivid and I'm literally living it and seeing it now so I went in and I was like okay God I've been doing my own thing and I've been getting it wrong like every time I always stuff up if this is your will then you take me, you take me all the way. And I remember going there and I only went with my best mate. I never told anybody, like even when I saw people so, I knew there. Just tell me that, like, how hard is it? How do you do it? Do you get online? I mean, how do you get to audition for that? So you go, you wait in line, then you go yeah. and register. And it's like, in, you know, wherever it is, I did it in Brisbane and like it was at the stadium and it was here, thousands of people. And yeah. I'm like looking at all these people going, the hell, like I, I ain't going to get in. Like <laughs> it's, it's, you know, when you're like one person and you're yeah. looking at everybody else, you think, why would I? Why me? Yeah. I would think that I stood no chance, you know. That's what you think. And that's literally how I thought. And we were one of the last to go. I was one of the last to go in and I fell asleep on the thing and I said to my mate, I was like, let's just go home. And she goes, no, 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 we'll stay. And I was like, ah, oh, okay, oh, okay, sweet. And you do two auditions. So there's one between, uh, you audition in front of a couple of people and then you go into the big room this is way before TV, yeah. um, and it's the, all the executives. Yep. So you've got the executive producer, the producer, the directors, uh, Edna Clark, the vocal coach. You have all the top people who work, who actually run the show. 
And the first thing, honest to God, but people see this as a negative. I see this as a positive because I know Greg Benes now and I know the kind of person he is. I'm so glad he said this to me because it it set me apart from everybody. And the thing is, I'm glad he said it. He said to me, I was like, oh, hi, how are you? And he goes, hi, how are you? He goes, you know what? All you Polynesians think you can just walk in here and sing, but you're all lazy. And me, I was just like, oh, hell no. <laughs> no, no, you didn't just say that to me, brother. But he didn't know. I was prepared. That just boosted me. Because I'm, I'm so competitive, that just instantly just put me on. I was like, I'm ready. Chuck it at me. He goes, well, what are you going to do when it comes to country week? And I said, I'll do Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire. And he goes, okay, then sing it. So I sang it. He goes, well, what will happen if it comes to rock week? And I said, oh, Metallica, nothing else matters. And he goes, okay, sing it. And after I sang I was like, are you done? Can I do my audition now? Hey, sing me a tune. Oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, oh geez, I don't know if I got the voice, but I'll try something. I'll try it. Just uh, give me a line. We can be bigger, bigger than this. Listen to that good song beating in your chest. Don't be scared straight too far from the river. You can be bigger. We can be bigger, bigger. How lucky am I? <laughs> That's the best thing that's happened to me in a long time. <laughs> that's for you. That's for me. Thank you. So how does it go? You won that one. Did you win? Yeah. You went right through all those thousands of people and you just kept going. I know. Oh, man. How did that feel? That was um, such a surreal, incredible, um, most incredible experience in, like, how could I ever forget that? I could never forget that. That was a moment, like, and the thing for me is um, – and this is not like a try and be a, like, you know, those um, humble ones and like try and be like, oh, yeah, I'm for the people, whatever. But I knew going into that, I was taking my whole family. Mm. I knew going into that, I was taking all my people. I knew going into that, I was going in and I was taking people just mm. like me. Mm. I was living everybody's dream and anybody's dream who was beat down, who was nothing. Everything that was used against me as to hurt me and destroy me now became my superpower and my super strength. And now it's my tools to help save other people. So when I sung on that stage, I saw my people, when we won that night, I saw anybody like me, we won that night. And I'll never forget that. And I love that. It's not just transformative for me and it's a win for me and it's I'm getting up there. It's anybody that's with me, they're coming with me. Like I that's that's for the people. That's a win for the people. Anytime I win, that's a win for the people. Mm, it's empowering. And it is. Like for me to see people like me succeed gives me great joy. So, you know, yeah. for me to see somebody like you, I'm just in awe, really, I am, because it does make you feel empowered as a person that, you know, yeah. you can achieve as well, doesn't it? I've had a very lucky background. For so many of those kids out there to see you against all those odds and up there winning that, I mean, magic, you know, it's a magic moment, isn't it? Oh, it's incredible. Like I just, I always feel overwhelmed and I have moments by myself and I'm like, I just look around and I look at my people and I look how happy and I look how far I've come and I look what the blessings that I've been given in my life and I look at my little family. I'm like, man, I'm such a blessed man. And I was like, look at us. We're all like winning. Like, you know, we have our ups and downs and we go through shit and we go like, you know, sometimes it's like we go to the pit of pits, but I'm fortunate that I can keep getting back up and going. And I, and then when I am down and I can't get back, up, I've got people who are getting me back up and I do the same for other people. So it's like, 
I just, uh, it's it's just yeah. overwhelming how in- incredible it is. Yeah, yeah, you are. You're so inspiring. Uh, tell me about your cancer and your cancer diagnosis and how you dealt with that. To be honest, that was one of the biggest blessings in disguise I've ever had. It's so weird because I think you think of cancer and you think, and if you've watched the documentary, it's quite intense. Like physically, yeah, intense, frustrating because they had to stay in hospital. It hurt. It hurt like hell. But um, mentally and like the process, it was really it was really weird because I, I didn't fear once. I, I wasn't scared once. I was just frustrated because I was like, oh, do I have to take off a couple of months of working? I was like, I was actually angry. I was like, no, oh, this is annoying. Like, it could have come at the worst time. I'm, you know, I'm getting my mojo back, getting in the studio. And I was like, I, I even pushed it out an extra month. And they were like, no, you can't. You're going to get it done. I was like, yes, 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 yes. But I need to work. The fact that I was giving up work, I was struggling. Just coming out after, like, I, my my head after coming out and going back into thing, I just decided when I was in there, I was like, no longer, never again am I going to wait on anybody's for permission of when to or how to or who with. I was just like, and I went into like, you know, talk to my team. And I was just like, if I don't do what makes me happy, then I'm all good to walk away from it. Because at the end of the day, I want to be happy. I'm, I've made, I've done everything, done all the whatever. I was like, now I want to be happy. And I was just like, I can be happy doing what I want. I was like, but if I'm not doing what I want to do, what's the point? I don't want to do something you want me to do that don't make, if I'm not passionate about it. So my attitude changed. And then I don't have to go on a diet forever because I'm, for, I'm, I'm Polynesian. I look at food and put on weight. But <laughs> I hear you. Like, yeah. I hear you. Like, my mum looks at me because my mum's supposed to get her stomach out too. I'm like, mummy, you will never have to go on a diet ever again. She goes, ooh, that is pretty good, my mum. Because she knows we're like, that's our family. It's in our blood, man. We're looking at food. Our, you know, and I think our culture is very similar to Lebanese. It's based yeah. around food, yeah. eh? Everything's yeah, absolutely. food. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I have the same problem. Listen, we've got to finish it there. The book is called Impossible, My Story. Stan Walker, you are so inspiring. You have made my day, honestly. I've just loved it. Oh, you've made my day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.